Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the CER podcast series on the economics of populism. My name is Sophia Besch. I am a research fellow at the Center for European Reform. And for this episode, I'm in conversation with David Willits and Nicholas Crafts. David Willits is the executive chair of the Resolution Foundation. Nicholas Crafts is director of the Center for Competitive Advantage at the University of Warwick. Thank you both for being here. The topic of this episode is, was Brexit a rebellion against globalization? And I want to start by asking both of you if you could sum up your answer to this question in 60 seconds. Mr. Willis, shall we start with you? I don't believe that globalization is the reason for Brexit. First, although there has been relatively flat incomes and earnings in the past decade or more, I don't believe that is the result of globalization. And secondly, those relatively modest increases in incomes people have enjoyed don't seem to have been the crucial factor driving their voting for Brexit. There was a big element of uh, worry about the future, worry about migration, uh, aversion to cultural and social changes in Britain. Nicholas Crafts. Globalisation to me means greater integration of markets and that implies more trade, more specialisation, it implies uh, more factor flows, more flows of investment, people and so on. If you ask some of the things which have caused discontent in the UK and I think informed some of the Brexit vote, one of those surely includes the bad economic outcomes for the North. Uh, includes uh, long-term deindustrialization, uh, the feeling that the deindustrialization there contrasts with the success of financial services in the South. And secondly, obviously globalization or particularly European integration as well has led to increased migration. Personally, I believe that that has been good for most members of the British uh, population. But I don't think you can easily sell that on the doorsteps. Why Britain? To what extent is this referendum specific to the UK and the trends that have led up to it? And where can we perhaps draw parallels to other European countries? Well, one of the most interesting interventions in the discussion we just had was uh, from a participant who said that the composition of the top 1% of incomes different Western countries varied and perhaps in Britain it would be particularly bankers, uh, perhaps in America it would be particularly in some of the professions like lawyers and medicine. And she argued that the form that populism takes and resentment against um, people uh, with very high incomes would depend partly on what the composition was. So I do think there are populist movements in different countries, they take different forms and that was a very interesting thought about part of the reasons why they differ. I think one would expect a long period of economic stagnation to uh, produce some populist reaction. Uh, the 1930s suggests that very strongly to me. Most European countries have been through exactly that phase. So I think there is something common and that was a subtext of the discussion that we've just had. 
The specific British part of the story, I think, is the extreme reliance of Britain on the financial sector. And uh, what we've seen in both the late 19th century and the late 20th century globalizations, that London has gone very far ahead of the rest of the UK. In the period when globalization was suppressed, in the interwar period in the early 1950s, that wasn't nearly so much the case. So if you are, like me, a provincial, your <laughs> instincts are indeed uh, to be a little bit um, unhappy about that. Mm. Can governments counter these trends? And can they counter them through economic and social public policies? And can they counter them in 2016? Or are the political tensions that we see in many European countries stopping them or blocking them from implementing the kinds of policies that are needed right now? Yes, I mean, one reason why I don't like this narrative of blaming globalization is it also leaves national governments and national democracies kind of hopeless victims of forces outside their control. When we at Resolution Foundation try to understand why income growth has been slower in Britain in the last 10 or 20 years, you look at domestic economic policies. You look at policies on skills and education. You look at the effect of the cost of housing on living standards, which is because we haven't been building enough houses. So yes, there is still a significant role for national governments in shaping economic policies, and we mustn't think national democracies are somehow powerless and hopeless. They're not. Mm. Yeah, I think if the issue is um, getting back to economic growth, there are plenty of policies which in principle we could use and which are under the control of the individual government, the level of the nation state. That isn't to say they will be used or are politically feasible. Mm -hmm. I suspect the problem is that actually most of these policies are not politically feasible. Let's take the most obvious one. Uh, in order to cope with uh, migration, in order to cope with the needs of what we might call the indigenous population, very important that Britain expands its housing supply. But who in Westminster is in favour of abolishing the present form of land use planning? As far as I can see, almost no one. But unless land use planning is seriously reformed, the South East will remain a serious uh, problem in terms of very high house prices, massive intergenerational effects, and resentment at more people joining the queue for those houses. So we've talked about the political tensions in Westminster. One capital that has not been named in this whole discussion is Brussels. And for many voters, at least on the surface, this Brexit vote was about Brussels. Can we and should we blame the EU? Well, ultimately, Britain has to take responsibility for our own democratic decisions. I do think that had we not had the Eurozone and the Euro experiment, which I, I believe is, has probably held back living standards across Europe, Uh, had we not had the Eurozone, I don't think this vote would have happened or gone this way. But uh, it, it, it's not helpful to sort of sit around saying, well, if only external circumstances would be different. Ultimately, this was a British democratic decision. But there's been an unhappy history of a picture in Britain of Europe underperforming, malfunctioning, not being well run, not being a dynamic growth area. And the, the weak economic performance of the Eurozone has been a big factor in that. Mm. 
Brussels does clearly impose some constraints on British policy. Uh, that's uh, got to be the case if one is to have a single market. Uh, the way, however, in which the single market um, approach has been run has perhaps been unnecessarily centralised and leaving uh, too few degrees of freedom for the national governments. That seems to me a legitimate area of concern. What I think is completely bogus in the British argument is the notion that there are massive fiscal transfers to Brussels uh, which are sort of out of all proportion with any benefits that we get. On the contrary, the benefit to cost trace ratio of those transfers has been excellent. So let's get back to the bigger picture for the final question. We're talking about the economics of populism this weekend. Should we be talking about the economics of populism or should we be talking about social factors, about political factors, about cultural factors that have led to the situation that Britain and indeed many other European countries are in right now? Well, that, that's really been the focus of the discussion, and it's fascinating that the Centre for European Reform has brought together a group of 40 economists And there's quite a strong theme throughout discussion that economics doesn't explain everything. And there are lots of factors independent of economics. Uh, and indeed, if you, uh, if you look at the uh, patterns of voting in Britain, I would argue age has proved to be a crucial factor. People aged over 44 on balance voted for Brexit. People under 44 on balance for Remain. And often those older people are actually more affluent. So you have to look at explanations of people who don't, uh, don't like the social and cultural changes in our country, things like that. Yes, so economics is part of the story, but by no means the whole story. And for me, what was refreshing about this discussion we've had is a recognition amongst economists that they can't explain everything. <laughs> Uh, I quite agree with those remarks. Clearly, the pattern of voting is more complex than a, a simple-minded economist could possibly ever explain and does indeed uh, link to these quite deep cultural issues, issues of identity, probably issues of implicitly intergenerational con uh, conflict and so on. That's all fine, but I think I would come back to the point that in the absence of economic weakness, including in the Eurozone, as David said earlier, there probably wouldn't have been a majority to leave. So the issue is not, can you explain the whole proportion of voting? It's, could you explain what tips, what could have been probably 55-45 into 48-52? And on that, I do think economics has quite a lot to offer. My colleagues at Warwick, Sasha Becker and his co-authors have just produced a very deep analysis of voting in the Brexit referendum and they suggest that um, being economically left behind does have something to do with it. Actually, interestingly, through things like um, the uh, shortfalls in local authority spending, that uh, the combination of economic difficulties or austerity policies following the crisis and weak economic performance of the macro economy, both of those have contributed. It's one of the great might-have-beens, you know, after the Blair government opened up uh, the British economy to migration from East Europe on a scale that most other European countries didn't agree to, 
Although overall, I think those migrants from Poland and elsewhere brought enormous economic benefits, they clearly did also bring some pressures on public services, and there wasn't an adequate grant to help local authorities that just faced more pressure in their school places or a need to build more housing. So if migration had not been associated, as it became in the public mind, with pressure on public services, the debate had been very different. Indeed, and the lesson there is that it's a good idea perhaps to open up to more migration, but only if you have the complementary policy package that uh, makes this acceptable to, let's call it, the median voter. Thank you very much for your time, David Willits, Nicholas Crafts, and thank you for listening. If you like the CIA podcast and this mini-series on the economics of populism, you can subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud for regular updates. And let us know what you think. Tweet us using the hashtag CERpodcast. Or follow us on Twitter at CER underscore London. <laughs>